Our Advent wreath is getting a little brighter each week. The accumulating light reminds us that the day of his return is drawing closer and closer. Amen? Amen. This morning, before we dig into the word, I would invite you to pray out loud a simple prayer before we begin that goes like this. Lord Jesus, open my heart to you this season. Can we pray that together? Lord Jesus, open my heart to you this season. Oh God, that is our desperate plea. And as we sit here this morning, we come to this place, uh, not to hear from a pastor, but to hear from you. And so we invite you to speak, Heavenly Father. Spirit of God, take these words now and do with them what only you can do. For the glory of Jesus Christ and for the sake of his reputation, I pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Recently in Psychology Today magazine, 52,000 Americans responded to this one question, what would it take to make you happy? What would it take to make you happy? Some of their answers, good friends, good social life, being in love, recreation, recognition, success, being attractive, beautiful, being uh, in a good financial situation, having the right house, having the right job, living in the right city. Uh, The interesting thing to me as I perused the list was most of those attempts to find happiness were through external rather than internal means. In other words, the most popular strategy to obtain happiness was to have the right circumstances. This is what I call when and then thinking. When I get out of school, then I'll be happy. When I get married, then I'll be happy. When I have my children, then I'll be happy. When my children leave, then I'll... Be happy on and on and on. It's sort of an elusive concept. Never seems to materialize, though. It sure feels like a wild goose chase with no goose. If you want to find out whether or not the right circumstances will actually produce any lasting happiness, you can save yourself a lot of time uh, by reading a book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes. Solomon tells us in chapter 2, verse 1, I decided to enjoy myself and find out what happiness is. And in that chapter, Solomon lists the things that he tried. Accumulating things, building stuff, experiencing pleasure, achieving success. He says, I had it all. I had money. I had power. I had servants galore. Huge success in my career. I was the king over this great empire. But amazingly, none of that produced any happiness for him. In fact, he said, those are all dead ends. All of it is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Wow. If... The right circumstances don't produce any real, genuine, bona fide, lasting happiness. Maybe that's the wrong strategy. Maybe we should ask a different question. What will? In the scriptures, there is something called joy, which is very different from happiness. Because happiness is dependent upon circumstances or happenstance, good feelings based on good happenings. The problem with that is that changes based on those circumstances. Joy, however, is much different in that it is available to us independently from any circumstances. And so let me ask you this morning, where do you go to find joy? Where do you go to find joy? Have you come to a place in your life where you are missing joy? What produces joy? Real joy. It's a good question, and it's answered in our text today. If you'd like to join me in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Each week in this series of Advent, we are 
looking at part of the Christmas story this year. And today we're in chapter 1, starting in verse 26, in what has been called the Annunciation story, or the story of the angel's announcement to Mary. We'll pick up our reading in verse 26. If you're ready, say amen. Amen. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Here it is where we're first introduced to the parents of our Lord, written by the author Luke. Now you might say, how did he know? Luke was a first century follower of the Lord Jesus who researched all of this. He tells us in the beginning of chapter 1 that he heard all these stories and met all these people. He says, I've talked to John, I've talked to Peter, I traveled with this guy named Paul all over the world. I've been part of this exciting new movement for a couple of decades, but somebody's got to write this down. How about I do that? And so Luke takes it upon himself to interview everybody about everything, all the eyewitnesses, and puts down for us the most chronological account of the life of Jesus that we have. We know from history that he went up to Ephesus to interview Mary, the mother of Jesus, because that's where uh, Mary lived her later years, under the um, provision of the Apostle John. You can go to where she lived even to this day. So one day, Luke travels up to visit with Mary to interview her and asks her, what was it like at the very beginning? And she told him. And she told him exactly what the angel said. Look at verse 28. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. That is so stunning. She's scared to death, just like we saw last week. Anybody who ever encounters an angel in the Bible is always universally scared to death. In fact, that's what it tells us in verse 29. Look, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Now the question arises from this text, why does she find favor with God? Why does God choose Mary? That's an important question. And I don't know what your background is regarding what you've been taught about Mary, but if you come from a different church context, you might come from a place where Mary was elevated even to the point of sharing in the work of Christ and called the co-redemptrix. If that's the case, please bear with me, uh, because I believe some people have misunderstood words in this passage like in verse 28, highly favored, and in verse 30, found favor with God, to mean that Mary was somehow sinless or even immaculately conceived. And I don't mean any disrespect, but that's not something that the Bible ever explicitly teaches, and so we don't teach that here. In fact, the word favor there is the word for grace. It's the Greek word charis, and grace, by definition, is never deserved. It's always a gift. Nothing she had ever done commended her to God. God simply favored her just like he favored me, just like he favored you, and bestowed upon her his grace. What testifies to this reality is her own reaction of surprise to the angel. Notice verse 29. She was greatly troubled. Who, me? Why me? Yes, you, Mary. I mean, if she thought that she was being chosen because she was God's favorite, her response should have been, yep, that's me. I've been waiting for you. Instead, her response is one of internal conflict here and humble, conflicted surprise. Notice what she says later on in chapter 1 in that great poem we've come to call the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. 
For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Notice her humility. Notice she's being blessed by God with something that she doesn't deserve. And notice she's humbly thankful. Lastly, notice how she refers to God as her Savior. If Mary is sinless, why would she need a Savior? The answer is, she isn't. She needs a Savior just like I need a Savior, just like you need a Savior, because Romans chapter 3 is very clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one, not even Mary. Her response to this favor of God is one of gratitude and humility. And by the way, that ought to be our response as well, which leads us to our first point in discovering the path to joy this morning. Joy is found in humble gratitude for God's blessings. Can we say that together? Joy is found in humble gratitude for God's blessings. No spirit of entitlement, no I deserve better, no great expectations, just humble gratitude for God's blessings. One of my close friends who's been in recovery for 29 years uh, says regarding his sobriety and his past addiction, in my humiliation, I became humble, and when I became humble, I became teachable, and when I became teachable, I became grateful, and now I have joy. Perhaps if you lost your joy, you could trace it back through that chain. Mary is grateful. I hope you never get over the fact that God has chosen you to save you and then to bless you and then to use you. Show me a humble person and I'll show you a person who has joy. This is the great mark of the followers of Jesus, joy. And that Joy is one that magnifies the Lord. Notice again in the Magnificat, her words. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Here's why this is challenging for us. Most of us grew up in an environment that kind of shaped the way we think about joy in the context of milestones. Most of us, if you're like me, grew up in a world where our lives started in school and all of those goals were dictated by school and my whole navigational system was navigated around this academic calendar, right? So for the first couple decades, uh, you know, I went to third grade, then it was pretty clear next would be fourth grade, and then after that, the next one would be fifth grade, and so on to junior high school, and then high school, and then college, and graduate school. Each year, there was new clothes, and new books, and new teachers, but generally, I knew where I was going. The path was pretty predictable towards the next milestone. But then after I got dumped off the academic treadmill, there's no real clear path after that, and so as a result, if you're like me, you start building these new milestones in your life that you you hope will produce joy after that. You know, uh, getting married, having my kids, uh, buying my first home, getting the career I, I want, which is all fine and good, but if I'm not careful, those goals are the things I end up aiming for in life as my North Star, and they, in and of themselves, become my source of happiness. But if I'm honest, if you're honest, most of life happens in between those milestones. 90% of your life is happening in the in-between interim period. And it's in that gap, the gap between my expectations and my reality, that a lack of joy can spring up inside of my heart like a weed. 
And so this morning, allow me to offer another approach as a suggestion from the scriptures as a different way to relate to this gap, those milestones. The Bible speaks about God's people instead being on a pilgrimage, being on a journey, and that there's just as much joy available in the process as there is in getting to the end. And each step and each day can be full of joy and full of meaning all on its own. That's not to say you shouldn't set goals. You shouldn't plan. Of course, of course you should, and I hope you do that, and I hope God works through your planning. But what I'm trying to say is most of your life happens in between those milestones, and most of your Christian growth will happen in that interval period between what's now and, and what's next, and joy is available for you during those times too if you will allow your navigational system to guide you with this truth. The only real north star in life The only real navigational system is Jesus Christ. He is our only fixed point in the universe that will never change. And this is why Mary says, my soul, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, let me put it into a point this way, point two. Joy is found enjoying the blesser, not just the blessings. Can we say that together? Joy is found in enjoying the blesser not just the blessings. Now, I'm not saying blessings aren't wonderful. I'm not saying we can't enjoy blessings and enjoy pleasures. I'm not saying you have to be like the Stoics who would protect their heart from any earthly pleasure. We can enjoy those things. We can enjoy the beauty of the snow on the pine trees this morning. We can enjoy a good hot cup of coffee. We can enjoy those things as gifts from God to us in this world. But you have to remember that those things only point toward the one who made them for you. They are not ends in themselves. They are means to that end, pointing you towards something greater. C.S. Lewis said it this way. Let your eyes run up the sunbeam to the sun. You don't focus on the sunbeam that comes from the sun. You find out where the sunbeam came from. In other words, if you're enjoying a pleasure, let your mind run up those blessings to the blesser and the one who has given you those things and let it point you to him. You can enjoy things as long as you remember to whom it points. In this way, a Christian should be able to enjoy pleasures in this world more than anybody else because we know who gave them. You know, whatever we have in this world, whatever little pleasures we have are just dim reflections of what it's going to be like when we sit at his feet one day. And we must always remember to let them point to him. St. Augustine said it this way, He loves thee too little who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. You have to see where all those little joys point you to. They point you to be God. They point you to God, excuse me. So be mindful, especially around Christmas, when we make our lists thinking something will make us happy. If it's something in this world, I guarantee you, you will always, 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 always be disappointed Always. It's an endless pursuit. Now, why is that? Because that's the way God set it up. To allow you to desire him and him alone. C.S. Lewis said it this way. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. The reason why there's this constant seeking in my heart, this constant pursuit of happiness, as Thomas and Jefferson said in the Declaration, uh, there's this constant longing that never seems to be satisfied, is because the only thing that will fill that void in my heart and yours is God and God alone. The Bible says deep cries out to deep. The deepest part of your heart cries out for the depths of God. 
Blaise Pascal said it this way, there's a God-shaped vacuum inside the heart of every man, woman, and child that can only be filled through Jesus Christ. The one thing you really need, the one thing you really long for is what Mary found here, God, and you'll never be satisfied, you'll never find your joy unless you find your joy in him. Try to substitute anything for him, even if it's a good thing, if you try to find your ultimate joy in anything but God, you will be disappointed. Finding our joy in God is the way faith can be defined. Finding our satisfaction and our finding our joy in God, that's what faith is. Allow me to read a quote from John Piper about this. When you have faith in Jesus, you rejoice in his glorious deity as Christ. You rejoice in the humble, sinless, virgin-born humanity of Jesus. You're satisfied by the universe-creating, miracle-working power of Jesus. You're satisfied by the covenant-keeping, law-fulfilling, righteousness-performing, perfection-providing obedience of Jesus. You're satisfied by the wrath-bearing, justice-satisfying, sin-atoning death of Jesus. You're satisfied by the death-defeating, devil-destroying, heaven-opening resurrection of Jesus. And you're satisfied by the sovereign, interceding, ever-present, never-leaving-us-alone, triumphal reign of Jesus at the Father's right hand. That's where you find your joy, in him alone. That's what Mary found. My soul rejoices in God, my Savior. Let's go on. I'm just getting warmed up. (laughs) The angel goes on to say in verse 31, you will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Never end. Wow. If you know, if you've been a Christian for a long time, Jesus talked about his kingdom on all occasions. Here we are 2,000 years later still talking about his kingdom, which I guess is at least a partial fulfillment of these words right here. His kingdom will never end. Now imagine if you just put yourself in Mary's shoes for a moment and allow yourself to just imagine how it would feel to hear these words about your own baby. I suppose it would be like being told your baby would be an Olympic athlete one day. Or your baby will go on to win the Nobel Prize. Or your baby will one day be the President of the United States. And actually, that's nothing compared to what the angel tells Mary right here. This is the promised Messiah, the anointed one, who would rescue his people from their sins, establish God's kingdom on earth, wipe away their tears, bring justice to mankind. Does it get any larger than that? And of all people, here's Mary from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? This small little nothing town, a remote city. She's not mature. She's a young girl still being mentored by older women in this story. My friend Peter Pendel says, this would be like a high school quarterback starting in the NFL. It's overwhelming. Notice Mary's response to all of this, 34. And Mary said to the angel, how? How will this be since I am a virgin? Now, please don't misunderstand this as a question about skepticism. Earlier in Luke chapter 1, there was a man named Zechariah who was chastised for this. He questioned the ability of God to give his wife Elizabeth a child in her old age. But God in the scriptures had already set a precedent for being able to do that in the scriptures, such as through Abraham and Sarah. You remember that story, yes? 
But there had never been a virgin birth up until now. Up until now, virgin births had a 100% failure rate. Reminds me about the guy who was introducing his wife, and English was not his first language, and he said, this is my wife, and she's impregnable. And the audience had a quizzical look on their face, and she said, I, he said, I mean, she's unbearable. And as they still started laughing, he said, I, I, I mean, she's inconceivable. <laughs> There's no human explanation for how in the world this is going to happen. Mary is stunned. How can this be? Translation, Lord, I don't know if you know how this works, but I'm not even married. I don't know who you think you're talking to. I'm like nobody, okay? I'm nobody special in my family. I'm not from a special town. Have you seen my Twitter account? I got like zero followers. I'm like, you know, this is the, I think you got the wrong person. And then the angel says, oh yeah, I think I must have the wrong person. No. And here's why the story, I think, of Mary is so interesting. Because Mary, like some of us, believed in God. And yet... She thought of herself as just an ordinary person that God could never use. She did not think she could be anything special. But then in this story, this angel shows up and kind of shakes Mary's whole world. And says, Mary, how would you like to be part of God's big story? How would you like to have God use you? Not because you're so great, but because I'm so great. And right here, Mary's having this Moment here with this angel, which is really a moment with God, isn't it? How can this be? The angel goes on to explain, verse 35, here's how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. If you'd like a confirming sign, there's something really interesting going, down, going on down the road. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Now, if you have your Bible open, please underline the next verse in big, bold ink. Pull out your highlighter, highlight it, circle it if you need to. Underline this thing in blood. Verse, 20, verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with you. For nothing will be impossible if you just believe in yourself. No. Nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. My friends, this is the testimony of God over and over and over again to the people in the scriptures. Is my arm too short that it cannot ransom? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such none can ever ask to Who, me? How is this possible? Lord, I know you can impact the teenagers in our youth group, but you want to do that through me? Lord, I know you are fully capable of pastoring a church, but you want to do that through me? Lord, I know you can use that song to touch people's hearts, but through me? 
For some of you today, God is speaking and asking you to step out in faith and trust him in a new area of your life. And maybe you're asking the same question that Mary asked. Who, me? This is a critical issue. I know it is for me. I can't read Mary's heart, but I sure can read my own heart. And when I give this kind of response to God's call, often it's a statement about my own insecurity and my main problem is my God is too small. Nothing is impossible with God. If you want to go to a new level of joy, take a lesson from Mary here. Joy is found when we trade in our own insecurities for a trust in God's power. Can we say that? Joy is found when we trade in our insecurities for trust in God's power. This is the level of responsiveness that God is seeking from us today. Holding on to nothing but the sovereignty of God to abandon ourselves in him and his strength because that's all we have. But it's true. He's able to do above and beyond anything you could ever ask or imagine. Nothing is impossible with God. I don't know what God is laying on your heart lately. I don't know what God is laying on your heart this Christmas. I don't know what God has for you this next year. But perhaps you're asking these same questions. Who, me? How, me? And maybe God wants you to respond like Mary here. This is the defining moment in Mary's life. Right here she has a crisis. Right here she has a choice. Right here she has to make a volitional decision. Am I going to believe the word of God or not? Am I going to remain afraid and refuse to place my trust in him? Or am I going to walk my faith out right here, faith in the God of the impossible? Listen to what she says in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Isn't that amazing? Behold, which means look. Behold, here am I, right here, send me. Mary is abandoning herself to God's will. She will live her whole life with this burden. She did not know how Joseph would react to this at this time. She didn't know what her parents would do when she announced to them that she was pregnant. She didn't know all that was involved with accepting God's call, but yet she submits herself to God's plan as his servant. I am the servant of the Lord. Your Bible might say, behold, the bond slave of the Lord. There are many names that God has given us, his followers, friend of God, children of God, favorite of God. May I suggest you add one to the list? Servant of the Lord. We are servants of the Lord. A few years ago, the princess of Thailand was taking a flight. For those of you who know Thailand, there's a royalty cult there. The royalty is seen as almost with deity status. They have these royalty laws. You can't even say anything against the king. You'll be thrown into jail. So the princess gets on this plane, takes a seat, and a servant is assigned to her during the flight to take care of her. And the servant has specific instructions because the culture dictated that you would never stand taller than royalty. You never tower over his or her head. And so throughout the whole first part of that flight, the, the steward, the servant, would cross by the princess's seat and would have to bow very, very low to provide her drink or water or whatever, never having her head above the princess's head. 
Then it came time for the evening, and the princess was ready for bed. And she pushed the recline button on that chair, and it went down almost completely horizontal. And I just want you to picture the servant, because the servant was crossing by her chair like this. Can I get you anything? One of my professors was sitting across the aisle and said to the servant, isn't this difficult for you? And he said, yes. But then he went on to say, but Buddha has appointed me as her servant. Buddha has appointed me to be her servant. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, somebody much greater than Buddha has appointed you and me to be his servant. And it's not just a princess. We're talking about Almighty God here. And paradoxically, when it comes to serving, he has first shown us the way. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And we find our joy in serving him. I'll never forget two phone calls I got on the same day. The first phone call was a friend who just got back from a cruise. All he did was complain about the cruise. Everything they got wrong on the cruise. Okay, man, cry me a river, right? (laughs) Goodbye. Next friend, about an hour later, calls me from a remote village in Mexico on a missions trip, crying. Pastor Dave Please pray that I would never lose my sense of joy that I have right now in serving. Where's the joy? True joy is found in serving the Lord. Notice the last part of Mary's phrase here. Behold, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Let it be. As I was sitting at my desk this week, I remembered that Paul McCartney was going through a difficult season in life, and he had a dream. And in his dream, his mother, named Mary, supposedly came to him with those words, let it be. And he wrote a song about it. Maybe you heard it. Please allow me and my stumbling self to... um, share with you how I took the liberty to rephrase those famous Beatles lyrics to give us a more distinctively Christian theme. Uh, Words of comfort for all of us to remember. Perhaps you could make this your prayer today. When I find myself in times of trouble, I'll recall what Mary said to thee, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, her response is right in front of me. Speaking words of wisdom. Let it be. Let it be. Final point in this passage is that joy is found when we say yes to God. Let it be. Joy is found when we say yes to God. Mary humbly avails herself to God, doing the impossible through her because of his power. May we follow in her steps. This is a level of sacred obedience, not because we're extraordinary, we are ordinary like her, but because we are willing to obey and willing to say, yes, Lord, let it be. May you and I say to 
the Lord Jesus, Behold, I am your servant. Let it be according to your word. Mary accepts this call on her life from God right here, and I think you know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey says. 33 years later, she would watch this son die. A few days after that, though, she would peer into an empty tomb. And she came eyeball to eyeball with her son resurrected from the dead. And at that moment, she knew that her son was actually her savior and the savior of the world. And then she knew everything the angel said was true. The lesson from Mary's life here is that joy has come in the person of Jesus Christ. We find our joy in humble gratitude for his blessings. We find our joy when we trade in our insecurities and inadequacies and simply trust in his power. And we find our joy in saying yes to God Let it be to me according to your word. Where do you find your joy? Are you ready to say yes to God this season? Are you ready to say yes to God this new year? Are you ready to go beyond the who me, how could this be, and into the next phase of let it be? Are you ready to make a decisive surrender and say, yes, me, Lord? This time I'd like to invite our worship team to come up. And in this sacred moment, I would invite you to just bow your heads and close your eyes as we take a moment to just be with God. And as we pray, May I say, if you're here today and you're sensing that God is calling you to obey him in a moment of decisive surrender, and you're willing to say, yes, me, not knowing how it's going to get done, but because nothing is impossible with God. If you're willing today to say, yes, me, each person here I know is going to be different. But if you're willing to say that, I don't want to embarrass you. I don't want to point you out. It's just simply between you and God. No one else would ever know But if today you're willing to say, Pastor Dave, I'm making a critical decision, I'm making a decisive surrender, I want to say, yes, me, Lord, in this season, in this next year, as we pray, would you just slip up your hand, I want to pray for you. If you're willing to say, yes, me, Lord, would you just slip up your hand, between you and the Lord, no one will know, but you and him, say, yes, me, Lord. Our Father, I know that you're working. We don't know why you would risk your entire program with sinful, limited, weak people such as ourselves. But perhaps you're God, and because of that, you're willing to take the risk. We're honored to be a part of your plan. And so I pray for each one here today. You see their willingness. You see their hearts. Help them to see the unique way you're calling them to play a role inside of your kingdom. Give them opportunities to carry this out this season and in this new year. We commit ourselves to you. And for all of us, Heavenly Father, may we remember to find our joy in you. May we, with the angels and all of the other characters in this story, 
be humbly surprised and excited to be a part. And may we find our fullest, truest joy in you. And may we sing joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, God of love. In the matchless name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.